What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbro, and today, we got a corker. Vision of Disorder's sophomore full-length, Imprint. But there will be no slumping, as we're joined by Matt Baumbach and Mike Fleischman from VOD, who give us an extensive experience on what it was like making and touring that record. From the inclusion of Phil Anselmo of Pantera fame, to touring with Earth Crisis and Sepultura, and the pit stops along the way, like their Resurrecting Reality EP, no stone is left unturned, nor is any string left in standard tuning. But first... Vision of Disorder hailed from Long Island, New York, which has a rich musical history, especially when it comes to hardcore. One of the biggest and best to break out of that large slab of earth completely surrounded by water is Incendiary, product of New York. Guitarist Brian Audley from Incendiary was kind enough to reminisce about his early exposure to VOD and what makes them legendary for him and his peers. You know, you being in a prominent Long Island hardcore band, I would say by default, you know, VOD had to be a big inspiration for you, a band that you saw when you were younger that uh, was one of an early exposure for you to heavy music. But, you know, I could be wrong. So how did you first even become aware of Vision of Disorder? Vision of Disorder was among one of the first hardcore bands I ever heard. Um, Basically, my same entry point to like all of hardcore and all of the things I got into was through one of my friends, older brother, passed down a mixtape that had a bunch of bands that ended up becoming some of my favorite bands. That's where I heard Silent Majority for the first time. That's where I heard Earth Crisis for the first time. That's where I heard Snapcase and Indecision. And VOD was one of those bands on that tape. And I remember very clearly the song was Suffer, which still remains one of the best songs and one of my favorite songs by the band. Um, and, you know, from that point on, you know, with hardcore at large, um, it was just kind of like a mission of trying to find as much content and music about these bands that I had just heard on a copy of a copy of a cassette tape. VOD was one of the bands that was kind of easier to find their music at the time because, you know, the self-titled Green Drip record was kind of available more universally in more record stores. And, you know, I was able to, to find that pretty quick. And at the time, I didn't really, I wasn't really able to kind of separate or, or delineate how popular or big or small any band was. So 
any band that had a physical compact disc that you could buy at a store, every band was like Metallica big. You know what I mean? Like every band was playing big shows and, you know, maybe on MTV or something because they had a CD. So when I saw VOD had like a real CD that I could get at, you know, I don't even know where I would have picked this thing up. Let's say nobody beats the Wiz because it's funny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was like, oh, damn, this band, you know, this band must be huge. Then I would later learn that they were from Long Island, which, you know, that's kind of like beyond just, you know, sonically how cool their music is and how that, that may have gone on to influence my music. VOD really made everything like tangible to me. You know what I mean? Because again, to the, the point I was trying to make earlier is like, I thought every band was just untouchable and out of reach and, you know, touring on buses and playing arenas. And it's just like, you know, big rock star stuff. But when I learned that Vision of Disorder was from Long Island, you know, not very far from where I, I am, a couple years older than me, from the same place, doing the same things, like that really kind of like made everything tangible to me. Like, well, if a Vision of Disorder can come from Long Island and go on to have a CD and nobody beats the whiz, then <laughs> damn, maybe, any, you know, maybe if I have a band, I could too. And that really kind of, made just open the door of possibility to everything to me. And obviously, you know, the music speaks for itself and continues to, you know, hit me just as hard today as, as the first time I heard it. Well, that's awesome. I would have never guessed that you, it didn't go the other way that, you know, Long Island, then VOD, but you knew who VOD was before you knew they were local heroes. I mean, and I'm with you because (laughs) people probably don't, uh, realize or think about it now because it's so easy that any band can well of course put music on a streaming service but also even pressing a cd is uh much more affordable but back then if you did have a cd you were kind of somebody i mean you were at least doing something where it was cost effective for you to press a cd that was pretty expensive back then yeah yeah and actually that's a good point of clarification that you made like i was definitely not like you know seeing them in playing basement shows and playing the PWAC, which is like, you know, this, this kind of like legendary older Long Island venue. Um, I, I wasn't around for that. That, that was like just slightly before my time. Like I discovered VOD when, when that green drip record came out and then kind of reverse engineered and did my homework to find their earlier material and go on to see like, oh shit, they were playing these like gigantic shows, like in places like a few pounds away from me. Like that's crazy. And that, that really kind of supports what I was saying earlier about making the whole thing just seem like so much more closer to home literally and figuratively. Yeah. That's a cool point too. Just a, a representation kind of thing. Like you said that uh, if they could do it, then you could do it. I mean, chain wallets were available for you too. And you can also get out there. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I should, I should mention too, like, again, just that whole idea of like, man, these guys are like, I see a lot of like myself in, in these guys is their portion of the New York hardcore documentary when, you know, many of the other bands that are featured in that are from New York city, you know, the, the mad balls and the, and the crown of thorns and the, and the district nines um, talking about like their experiences and, and like the way that they grew up in New York city. Um, but then when it gets to VOD's part, you know, I, I vividly remember the footage of them like mowing their lawn and stuff and like hanging out on like their parents' couch in Long Island. And that connected with me, right? That's like, okay, these are my guys. Like that's that's a snapshot of my life. Like the other stuff, you know, I love it sonically and I love the idea of it. It looks so dangerous and crazy and scary to me, which is why I'm drawn to it. But 
I can't act like I'm living that life. I can definitely validate that I am living the life of the guy mowing his lawn and, and showing on his parents' couch. <laughs> right. Well, not only that, that's a good point that you bring up too, is lyrically, you know, maybe you weren't able to relate to a, a Mad Ball or Crown of Thorns as much either because you weren't growing up in the streets, but I'm sure you could relate to the emotional turmoil that Tim was going through at some point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. And, um, you know, I feel like that's why I'm drawn to a lot of the the New, or the New York hardcore bands that I'm drawn to are, are like that. It's usually, you know, VOD and Indecision is always in that conversation and bands where like less urban and, and hard and tough and a little more kind of like secular, I guess, so to speak, and a little more like personal. Yeah. Secular was the word that they would use at Christian school to describe all the music I wasn't allowed to listen to at school. Well, perfect use then. <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't uh, performance artist Carmen, or I think even DC talk was considered secular. I don't know how deep you go into the Christian rock music scene, but uh, Carmen used to pack very, out very stadiums. Shallow. Okay. <laughs> there was okay. this guy named Carmen and he would pack out, I'm talking full arenas with this like vaguely gospel music, like not even like, like, you know, how people talk about the beach boys now and that back when they came out, yeah. they're like, yo, this was rock and roll. Like this was dangerous. Um, it's kind of like that where it sound, but it, but in the mid nineties, like at the same time that VOD is big, there's this guy Carmen doing very, very slightly more aggressive than gospel music songs, but like performing them in a way like Alice Cooper would perform a song, you know, where there's like props Got and it. stuff. Well, shock rock. Yeah. Just blowing up, just taking over the Bible belt. So being somebody that got into VOD with the Green Drip album, what was it like for you as a fan when you first heard Imprint? I remember like very much anticipating Imprint and, you know, it really being at a time where like you didn't really know anything, like when anything was going to happen, you know, um, short of maybe seeing like an ad in a magazine one time, if it had a release date, other times you're kind of just waiting for it to show up at the record store. Um, and I remember, I mean, honestly, I remember liking it right off the bat. I, I definitely wasn't, you know, my years weren't sophisticated enough to kind of notice really any differences in the production, which now are kind of like clear as day. Um, I was just stoked on a new VOD record. I knew that it sounded super angry. Um, I was blown away that they got Phil and Selmo to sing on a song because I was was am a gigantic Pantera fan. And I guess that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier too. It's like, oh man, these guys are up there with Pantera. They got the guy on the song, you know? It kind of just like reinforced that rock star gigantic band status that I already thought that they had. Yeah, man. I I mean I loved it right out of the gates. And I remember I, I think I actually had a seven inch from them that had one of the songs that had an early version of one of the songs that went on to be on imprint. Um, I think it's clone, like one of the, on the, one of the last songs on the record. So, you know, I, I kind of had something familiar on the release to, to kind of orient myself around, but yeah, man, I was, I was stoked on it. And I think the first time I got to see VOD and maybe the only time I got to see them while they were like, you know, their first, first and like an active band was around the time of that record. They played a show at a venue in Bayshore on Long Island called the Swing Set. I think it was VOD Final Majority Tension. Yeah, I remember uh, when Imprint came out and knowing this guy who I probably have never talked to since, but for whatever reason, 
at the time we were close enough that he was like, yo, Phil Anselmo is singing on a song with Tim on this imprint record. And it's amazing. And I was like, so it's like a, it's a duet. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't even <laughs> like you don't get how that vocals work. Yeah, I couldn't really wrap my head around. I was like, "What do you mean they're singing together?" And the story that he told me, which has since been debunked, is he's like, "Yeah," and they were competing with each other. And uh, Tim Williams from VOD busted his eye blood vessel out of his face trying to scream as hard as Phil. And I was like, "Well, yo, if there's blood involved, like, let's you know cue up the track." So uh, I remember. Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> I remember that that that's, being like dude, that's funny, man. <laughs> a captivating thing for me, where I was like, "Oh my god, they're screaming so hard that it's exploding blood vessels!" Like that was out of a movie to me. And then when I heard the song, I believed it. I believed it for like twenty years until <laughs> they told me that it wasn't true. Yeah, I mean that's the type of mythology that could exist pre-internet, right? Like, like now you're like a Google search away from like debunk, like confirming or denying that. But at the time, I mean. That's kind of like, I guess that's like the uh, LAHC version of Marilyn Manson removing his own ribs or being Paul from the Wonder Years. <laughs> right. Well, it's more so that you're one mention of something that means anything to you and somebody else Googling it and telling you, no, you're wrong 10 seconds later. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the other thing with VOD was like, they were definitely a band that had like something for everybody and like a crossover thing. So like, in high school, or I think I was in either late middle school or early high school, like nobody is really, like it's difficult to find anybody who's into underground music period, or let alone very specifically defined hardcore. But VOD was a band kind of like Hatebreed, where like even the guys who were, you know, if you found somebody that was into like Pantera and Metallica, and, and I think it's a little early for Slipknot at this time, but like into like more like bigger metal new metal stuff like they know about vod so it kind of allows you to at least have the same conversation with some people and have something in common with other people you're around at the time and just kind of like working with what you got some dude that i know from my lacrosse team that oh yeah vod shit's pretty heavy you want to go see him yeah sure you know like that allows me to at least expand my radius of you know socially people i can hang out with and that are kind of into something similar they're definitely one of my favorite bands ever. They're one of the bands that have, has stood the test of time. You know, I'll still go see them every time they, they play Brooklyn. Yeah, it hits me just as hard. I have like kind of like a growing appreciation for them musically and like what they accomplished at the time. The mark that they've left on Long Island music and like every generation of Long Island hardcore after is, is undeniable. Dude, they, they never really stopped, man. The, the later couple of records they put out, like post-reunion, still fucking riff, too. Like, a lot of that sounds like very authentic VOD. So I would I would urge anybody that, you know, hasn't, that maybe hasn't gotten around to checking those records out yet or maybe didn't listen past, you know, uh, if, when it was first released, go back and check those out. Thanks so much to Brian for taking the time out to talk to us about VOD. And you can check out Incendiary on Instagram at IncendiaryHC. They got new shows and merch coming. I'm positive of it because they are a non-stop machine, as any fan of that band knows. Now that brings us to present day in our story. Imprint. Imprint's about to come out. Now, if you haven't already listened to the episode on the self-titled Green Drip album with Mike Kennedy and Jeremy Bohm of Touche Amore, I forgive you. 
But go ahead and do that now so you're all caught up. But basically, to give you a little Reader's Digest version, which was a magazine that they used to have in my dentist's office, 1996, the self-titled Vision of Disorder, a.k.a. The Green Drip, is released. And yes, it is widely heralded by us, the fans, as a classic, but the band was not happy with how that record sounded. All right, so they put out this album that they're kind of disappointed by. They go out on the OzFest with all of their Roadrunner peers, and they come back, and they're determined to make something that they're going to be proud of. And that's where we find our heroes today, Matt Baumbach and Mike Fleischman of the band, to tell us exactly how that dream came true. With 1998's Imprint... Green Drip comes out. You guys go out on OzFest. You know, that's a big deal as well. You're gaining momentum. You already had a huge swell of momentum leading up to self-titled, of course, which is what uh, resulted in you even getting the, the the offers from different labels, of course, going with Roadrunner. But after that album comes out, uh, there's some change in personnel in Roadrunner. They're kind of reformatting and refocusing what they're doing. And I'm sure as a band, you're doing the same thing. You're wanting to grow and, and move forward, go into the next step. And I would say that imprint um, is interesting because usually when a band has uh, a lot of success with an album, you know, the next step, especially on Roadrunner, they normally go in a little bit more of a commercial direction. And especially with you touring with all these commercially successful bands um, at that time after Green Drip, I would say Imprint is actually kind of the other way around. It's even more aggressive. You know, it's very, um, very uh, chaotic at some point. And I always kind of describe this album as like when you're getting in an argument with somebody and you're already kind of pissed off. And as you're talking through it, you're getting even angrier. So you just start yelling more and more. Like that's how this album feels like it starts off like you're kind of angry. And then as the album goes through, it's just uh, you're, you're screaming and, you know, and then it kind of barely chills out by the time Jada Bloom comes in, but you're still, you're still pretty pissed off. You're just kind of making your final points. So is that something you would agree with? Do you feel like imprint is an even more aggressive release than self-titled was? I will just start by saying very astute observation, but the, the choice of the sound of imprint was born out of our unhappiness with how thin and unorganic the first, the green drip sounded to our ears. The only thing I can say is that Imprint's the first time I think the band actually sounds like what the band sounds like. You know, like from a live perspective, recorded perspective, whatever it is, we wanted to make sure it didn't sound um, forced. You know, there's nothing forced there. It's just very organic. And, and really in that record, what you hear is us just literally playing. Um, pretty much the basics of that album are all live. You know, it's it's uh, the, the a majority of it's not like the first record, which was like, you know, it's trying to get yeah. on the right tempo <laughs> and all that. We were way too young. We had no guidance. We made horrible decisions. Everything that went into it was wrong. And then you you brought up our experience on the OzFest. And um, we did everything wrong on that. We could do a whole <laughs> just about how bad we screwed up our, our opportunity on the OzFest. But, you know, but we were on that same tour with another Roadrunner band who... who 
we felt was getting favored much greater than us. Yeah. And, you know, we, we pulled up in a, in a horrible little, not even a Winnebago, it was a shuttle bus. They had a full bus. They had a sound man. They had a tour manager. They were getting salaries. They had tour support. We had some, but we were in the same slot pretty much. You know, at that point we had sold more albums. We felt like we had more of a name and their, their riffs you could play if you cut all your fingers off and had a, had a you know, a stub on your hand. And I think our, you know, especially Matt, because of how skilled of a guitar player he is, I think our attitude for our next album is we're going to play circles around these bands yeah. and, and really defy what was, seemed to be the direction of heavy music at that time. What's funny, too, is that we were getting influenced by different things. And like a lot of people, uh, I think, don't realize how much VOD listened to different types of music. So like Mike's older brother was like incredible influence for us because he got us into like prog stuff. And it was a lot of technicality and all that stuff. And I remember thinking at the time, like almost intentionally trying to write something that was actually physically hard to do. Like, you know, and also like I had an instrument at the time that allowed more diversity and like faster type of guitar playing, faster riff kind of stuff. And, and I remember really seriously thinking that like, okay, I want to make something that I know will be a challenge to do. Well, you have to say what kind of, it's very important to share what kind of guitar you got. <laughs> it's that, that Ernie Ball uh, music man, the Eddie Van Halen. The Eddie Van Halen Wolfgang. Uh, was it called the Wolfgang at the time? Uh, it was the uh, the Ernie Ball music man, Eddie Van Halen model, yeah. which was like, you know, it was a game changer for those riffs, I'd have to say. Yeah, it was, it was smaller. So because it's smaller, you can do more faster. And like, it, it, it kind of influenced a lot of, uh, just a lot of challenging things to do. Like uh, I think like landslide's a good example of that, like kind of really trying to push the envelope, but even more so not only in a heavy direction, but also in a technical direction. You know, I recall at, um, we were on, this is when we were on tour for the green drip with, uh, we were in Florida about to play a show with earth crisis. And I remember it was at sound check. And the, the first riff that you wrote for imprint was, was, the, was colorblind. Oh, really? It was, yeah, and I remember coming to the stage to plug in, and you and Brendan were playing. And I remember thinking, like, all right, we're going to have a good second album. Uh, very early on, we did three songs that were the first for Imprint, I think. Right? It was Colorblind, Rebirth, and uh, Imprint itself. Yeah, well, the, the second, the first full song that we completed for Imprint was Imprint. Was Imprint. Yeah. yeah. Before, between the two records, you put out this seven inch with crisis records is kind of like an imprint of uh, an imprint which is thematic of revelation and it has a demo of clone which of course ends up being on imprint so was clone not originally in your mind part of the imprint sessions or that was written after these original oh, songs that, um i don't remember the actual time frame you know it's so strange because <laughs> we we got home from the green drip tour and then which we probably got home. It was end of September. We came home from Japan. So we did, we did the Ozfest. Then we went to, we did a U.S. tour with uh, Bloodlet and uh, Day in the Life. And then from there, we left and went to Japan and finished the Green Drip touring, really, in Japan. We came home, this is the end of September, and we went, we started writing Imprint. And we wrote the whole thing between October of 97 and March of 98, the whole, the whole album. So all we did during that time period was, was so we rehearsed. The, another thing about Imprint is that we play, we rehearsed, which, you know, normally we would rehearse like for the first album would be at night. 
we'd be drinking, we'd be partying a little bit. The imprint was all during the day it, because we had nothing. To, we didn't work because we had just been touring and stuff like that. But like one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it would be in the afternoon. We'd just be guzzling coffees and not really partying. You know, we partied a lot during that time. It was always after practice. And that's probably why it's so uh, coffee. Yeah, it's like coffee. <laughs> yeah, because the album is definitely more, uh, like I mentioned earlier, chaotic. But in that chaos is precision. So I would feel like you going into recording this album would have really had to have these songs down. And it sounds like that's exactly what you were doing. Just really like fine tuning them and making them perfect. Right. So from touring, from that touring cycle of the Green Drip, we were so we were a, a unit. You know, we were a unit. And, and, and really, um, I mean, if going back to resurrecting reality, I think that that was giving credit to the label. I, uh, <laughs> I believe that that was an idea to kind of get us back in the uh, street cred area because there was, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to, to, to look back on things now, but to imagine that when our first album came out, there was kind of a, uh, there was that sellout backlash too smooth of an album yeah. like um you're not you know, a hardcore band not a hardcore band and we you know it's road i mean freaking roadrunner like that's all of our every one of our favorite bands is on roadrunner it's you know it's you're talking about sepultura typo negative life of agony uh who the hell else was on freaking fear factory fear factory like i mean it's what that's a set those to sell out band. like i i didn't i thought that you know what's the different hardcore can't be associated with like the heaviest shit you ever heard in your life like it didn't make any sense and that it was funny too because i feel like at the, at the time i felt like because madball was on the label it was almost like justification that we can be on that label like you know it's almost like you can't say shit about us not being hardcore when the same label has madball a metal like it was such a weird it's yeah. so weird how hard the, the lines were at that point and like how there was a backlash about us signing with with Roadrunner, which again, like I said, it's just a, it's a heavy, it's a super heavy label, but that still was looked at as like almost signing, like you know, like a like a Britney Spears style label. And it's funny like too because it plays into your psyche. I know it played into Tim too because I feel like there's definitely moments in VOD lyric writing and stuff where it is almost like backlash, you know, kind of like almost talking smack back to the crowds that are talking to us. <laughs> You know, uh, I definitely feel that influence, you know, and sometimes it's almost like, you know, I don't know, like a lot of people talk shit. And I think even if someone got with you on imprint is almost like a fuck you back to them. Like you talk a lot of shit. We'll, we'll put out this track that's going to, you know, say we're up with you kind of, you know, uh, thought process. It was very machismo, but at the time, that's just how pissed off we were. But and and also we we were in kind of agreement that the album didn't come out heavy enough. I know people look back at at the Green Drip, and I hate to talk bad about it because it's some people really like that album. When I listen to other Roadrunner albums, like I could see how like maybe Fear Factory look at like the manufacturer now might be like, oh, it was so thin or something like that. But like I hear it, and it's like the best thing I ever heard in my life. You know what I mean? So I hate to say like, oh, it sounds terrible because someone it sounds good to someone who liked it at the time. You know what I mean? But to our ears, it was like we already had, like it just didn't come off as um, as meaty and organic as like we we put out still before that, and we were happy with that sound. But when we when we when it got time to to release our 
real album on Roadrunner Records, we thought that the sound quality should have taken a step up and just quality overall. And it just kind of like, it just didn't connect with us when we heard, when our ears heard it. Well, we know that we're not going to do that. You know, we know we're not going to do the green drip. We want to do almost like not the polar opposite, but just make sure that nothing sounds clean. Make sure nothing sounds safe. You know, aggression was the main key. I think. So again, credit to the label, the, the, our A&R person at the time, one of the people he recommended to get that effect was producer Dave Sardi, who um, we met with once. And just everything he said was just great. Everything we heard him say, we were just like, you know, he was like, I want you guys to have a sound, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to come down and listen to you guys play. The first album we recorded, I hate to keep talking better about the first album. We had a producer who had never heard any of our songs. He pressed record before he, he would record each song. There was no, he didn't listen to anything. He had no idea what we sounded like, had no idea what we were supposed to be going for. It was just a job. He didn't have any vision or any, you know, but Dave Sardi, you know, was familiar with us, came to our practices a couple of times, sat in the middle of the room on the floor. And I think he just was like, I'm going to make this album sound like what it sounds like when I come to practice and they're in a small room and I sit in the middle of the floor. And I think that's what he did with the production of the album. Just like if I, if I came inside Indian style in the middle of these guys playing, what, what does it sound like? And he just recreated that. Yeah, I was going to ask you that if uh, they were who kind of brought in Dave Sardi. Of course, at that time, he had just recently done the Orange 9mm album. Um, that was their kind of major label uh, breakthrough. And I know that Jamie Locke, who was the producer of Green Drip, you know, universally has been kind of seen as a, like a good engineer, not necessarily a hands-on producer. And that's something we didn't know about him. We didn't know that that we thought Madball sounded good and, and they offered us that, that option. But really at the time for our first album, um, we had done a demo at legend studios, which is where VOD recorded our legendary first uh, yellow demo with, you know, the original formula for failure. But to our eyes, it's like, we just got signed to roadrunner. We're not going to go to the local demo recording studio down the street and do an album. Like <laughs> we're not doing that. We're going to do, we want to work with a professional. And the Madball album sounded good to our, dear, our ears. Little did we know that it was Matt, Matt Henderson is. producing and Jamie Locke was hitting record. <laughs> now, one thing that I noticed about the sound, too, of Imprint, and you can tell me if this was deliberate or if I'm even making it up, but it sounds like each guitar is in each ear. Like, yes. uh, there's, it's not stereo. It's kind of like each one is mono. Is that something you guys deliberately wanted? That's not something that we wanted as much as I think that's what Dave Sardi heard. I could say it actually sounds like like what Mike was saying before, you're a tight unit coming off tour, you're rehearsing every day and everything. It got to the point where I think in the writing sessions for Imprint that we were so in tune with each other that me and Mike uh, Kennedy weren't even like, even like uh, showing each other the parts we were playing. <laughs> so almost to the point where even similar to the vocals with Beauty, well, the first time we really heard what each one of us were doing was mostly when it was recorded. You know, like the, it's so chaotic in that record that like there's a lot of parts where I didn't know what Mike was doing. And I think he didn't know what I was doing until it actually got on tape, you know, and, and it kind of shows, I think, how tight of a unit we were at the time. Plus, I will also say that Brendan finished his drums for Imprint the first day at the studio. Yeah. So we went in, we set up and 12 hours later, Brendan was done with his drums. So already kicked it was just like, you're done. Get out of here. Wow. <laughs> like to him. That but he had us all set up. And just and he just said, play every song. Quick, quick, quick. We played him once or twice. And then he was just yeah, like, told Brennan, you're out of here. Like, that's it. But um, going back to the guitars, I, he was very persuasive with that. So even if Mike and Matt wanted 
you know, that stereo guitar sound. He would he would put it on and be like, eh. And then he'd put it into both speakers and look at us and be like, ah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with him now. He's like, ah, ah. <laughs> it was cool sounding because, you know, we had never been produced that way. And I think that's similar to the live element of the band is that, you know, you hear it that way live. And I guess that's what he heard, too. Yeah, that's that's what we're right. He's sitting in the middle of the room. He's hearing one guitar to his right, one guitar to his left. So that's what he, he wanted that recreated. And it, it just was tr- trying to create a unique sound was some was like our dream. Like we want us yeah. to, to have so, like a sound where you hear it and you say, oh, that's them. And I think all these years later, you put it on and immediately that album has a sound to it which was like, is, a, is, a, is an accomplishment for us. Because, you know, the other albums, some of the other albums have a sound to it, but it's not necessarily like one that you want more. <laughs> you want more. Of. The weird thing about it is I can definitely say, I don't know if there's another new record that sort of sounds like it, because it's almost like a mistake. Does that make sense? Like, <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like anything more so just because I think he really did just go kind of go in and say, it sounds good press record let's do this you know i feel like it became a trend an idea he had which was he told us too after we finished he was like i'm gonna get this when we get this mixed and mastered yeah. it's gonna be the loudest cd in everyone's collection so when they put it on it's gonna they're gonna have to turn it down and i think that bands i think that became a trend and do i mean maybe he didn't start that but i think there became a trend in, in bands doing that to try to have that loud like old like oversaturated like too <laughs> too loud cd but I remember thinking at the time we were like, yeah, that's the well, best and, and it's funny because when we got the master, it actually was so loud that I actually you was like concerned. <laughs> I was like, is, are you sure that's supposed to be that loud? Like, is it not? Is it redlining a little? You know, you know, famously, uh, Rick Rubin does that. And he worked with Rick Rubin on the system of a down self-titled at the same yeah. time as this. So maybe. He, um, we hadn't even heard of I had heard of system. We had heard of system of a down. We had, they weren't that we didn't know how big they were. Uh, they were going to get, but I remember he was telling us that they, that they were into our stuff. He had heard of them, had heard of us through them. And he was just like, you know, but they're always talking about, <laughs> he was like, they're always talking about bands. Like, like they'd be like, Oh, Deftones, Deftones. And I'm just like, Oh, why? <laughs> like that was Dave Sardi's opinion of, of Deftones and all the, um, you know, anything else that was going on at that time, the corn Deftones. I remember you were like, you know, what's the guitar sound? Allison Chains. And he was like, Oh, like, <laughs> like he didn't yeah. want to hear anything that was like, you know, smooth or commercial or like, you know, he wanted everything to be really ear, organic. you know, hurt your ears. Like yeah. let's do stuff that hurts your ears. Analog and organic. Yeah. Very, like, I will time. tell you that while during our sessions, he got a call and he shared this with us to remix that w- w- became a hit right at that time was the song by Fastball. Um, uh, they packed up their bags and they, or whatever, <laughs> they started packing. Remember he also said, I, I might be uh, in the uh, contention to uh, work with Radiohead. Yeah. And we were like, but what about our album? And he was just like, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> that was his response. The song is called The Way. You got almost, to, you, you were going all the way through the hook and stopped at the title. Without <laughs> ever knowing the way. You were saying that the album sounds like a mistake. And I know what you mean by that, but it almost sounds like too. And I think you'll understand what I'm saying when I say this, that, uh, that none of you are playing the same song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Totally. But it all goes uh, together. It makes sense. But it, like you said, I mean, and it makes sense too when you tell me that you didn't legitimately know what the other parts were that people were playing. Like you all kind of knew the the general structure of the song and then just wrote your own <laughs> song. And it makes it even sound more like that because it is panned ear to ear. So I'm hearing this guitar playing something totally different from this guitar. And then the drums are crazy. And then your bass is so thick and, and meaty. Yeah. You guys, did you guys spend a lot of time on that tone for the bass? Nope. I plugged <laughs> 
<laughs> I plugged in and and we recorded. Yeah, but that's also <laughs> I think Sardi knew. Before. Yeah. Uh, style of amp and everything. I think he yeah, it was just exactly what you're amp, it was just ampeg sans amp yeah. play and 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 that's it. You know, acceptable, acceptable to him. Weird part about the guitars on imprint in general was that uh, in the umpteenth hour we realized, and this shows you how almost like dyslexic and, and uh, removed me and Kennedy were from each other's parts. Uh, we had two songs on that record that were tuned very low, tuned down to uh, A. And we didn't know until both guitars were fully tracked that they were totally out of phase. <laughs> like they were to the point where like, if you hit a note, it would sound like wobbly, like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, totally out of, out of phase. It, it just kind of, we didn't give a fuck because at the time we were just playing, you know, we you didn't mean hear that you st- both weren't tuned to the same. Not, it, not that we weren't tuned, but there's a way to set up a guitar that it, it would both, uh, um, basically be if you hit a note it's not going to go above or below the note uh, too much because the guitar has been set up properly like Warren Lee will, will give a great session on this he's a tutorial <laughs> but uh, you know at the time we weren't we didn't know how to tune down a guitar or anything we just put the tuning on the guitar and, and you know put heavier strings and just made it lower so it, it actually came to the time where we were almost done with recording all the guitars and we heard it together for the first time. Me and Kennedy both had to bang it out in like, I want to say like two, three takes most. Both those Rebirth of Tragedy and uh, uh, 12 Steps. Those two songs were literally quit takes of me and Mike just going back in and having to re-record guitars. After Sardi took our guitars, went to like 48th Street and got them like guitar doctored or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know. But it sounded, I remember still to this day, until to this day, if you listen to the end of um, 12 Steps, it is at that too. So you can actually yeah, hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's got that got that vibe to it. Yeah, no, it's heavy as hell. It's, it's one of the darker endings of the, of the album, but like it's, it's actually definitely out of phase. Another actually. credit to Dave Sardi is that he would use the term, which uh, I never heard anybody use it before. But instead of cheesy, he would say, oh, if you had an idea that wasn't, that was kind of, Cheesy. He would describe it as a bit Sam Ashy, wouldn't you say? <laughs> <laughs> I love that that term of like. I knew exactly what he meant when he says a bit Sam Ashy. But I remember when um, he didn't go in the. He had his engineer set up the amps, and he liked um, the guitar sound that he, I think it was Mike. You had the Mesa at yeah. that point. Mike had, was using the fifty one fifty, and he was like, "Oh, it's a great guitar sound." And uh, Kennedy was like, "Yeah, it's the PV." He's like, "It's a PV." He was like so insulted that he was actually that he complimented a, a Peavy. <laughs> and it was also Miss Kennedy's at the time playing a Paul Reed Smith through a PV. So I feel like the Paul Reed Smith is actually a big part of well, that. Well, that was, you know, the PV. We so the PV 5150, we have to credit with touring with Machine Head yeah, yeah, because they will, you know, we saw that they had PV. Everyone ended up using goddamn PV 5150s, but then you know, along one. the way, but they, they were one of the first bands we saw using the PV 5150s. And saying that was the secret to their heavy uh, guitar sound, so immediately, Ke- well, Kennedy, besides after after spending thousands on the uh, tri- on the triaxis, was totally digital. We uh, for our first European, Kennedy took money without without approval. He bought the most expensive head in existence at that time. Thousands. The tri- wh- wh- who made the triaxis? Uh, it's called the triaxis, and it was a completely like digital head and he heard that like maybe Hetfield had it or something and <laughs> like, he shows up to our he never could figure out how to use it but so he shows up before we even tried it he shows up with this huge rack case. box 
for, and we're getting on the plane. We're checking in um, for our European tour, and he's gonna he's gonna unleash the triaxis, and he rolls up with it in the case. And the uh, the 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 uh, the person we're checking in with that works for the airline just looks at Kennedy, looks at the uh, road case, and just shakes their head no. And then he just has to walk. His he girlfriend had to walk to take out. it home, remember? Like, <laughs> yeah, she had, <laughs> yeah, she had to take it home by herself, lift it into the. Uh, but yeah, but it actually, I don't know if he, maybe one practice he played, I think he brought it to um, Paul Crook of, uh, of Anthrax, Mate I think Lofin. tried to help him figure out how to use it. Cause it was like, you know, if something was digital back then, like you, you know, before the age of computers, you had to like hit buttons four times and then hit another like to set to set something. Like it wasn't like something. It was like Morse code. Like, Every button he hit it was like. <laughs> when you toured with Machine Head, did you guys get any workouts in with Logan? On Ozfest, definitely. He would always, you know, Logan would be would be walking by. He <laughs> never knew when he'd stop. I'm like, dude, you want to work? <laughs> you want to work out? But anyway, the only ex- <laughs> his his favorite exercise. So they they had um. I, did we have the bench or did they have? I can't remember. I we but we did. had the sit up. I bought like the sit up bench, like one of those decline sit up benches, and if you and um, two forty pound dumbbells. So if you wanted to do bench, you you'd um, put the the bench on a road case, and you could do you know some some bench. And if you wanted to do sit ups, but uh, Logan, the secret to his look, <laughs> decline bench. <laughs> he loved doing de- decline bench. And I remember the funny story that we always have with Brendan was uh, <laughs> Brendan got, got on for a set of decline bench and his head was like red like a tomato. And then Logan looked at him and just went, breathe, dude. <laughs> <And Brandon> went, <laughs> <laughs> but we had a lot of um, we had a lot of fun with Machine Head. I mean, it was us, Cold Chamber, Machine Head, Typo and Fear Factory. Whoa. That's just meeping all over them. That's meeping across yeah, America. Were, it was meat. We were meeping, man. You mentioned how you guys were like a unit going into this album. Uh, mm-hmm. On self-titled, you, Mike, are not even credited as a member of the band. So what happened where you were kind of reacclimating yourself and really committing to wanting to make that happen? Uh, well, I quit for a month, and it was the month where they made the CD jacket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it was spite. It was an unfortunate month, <laughs> but that's how bad the experience was of that first album. That yeah, was just to show you. But um, we all we kissed and made up, luckily. And um, but yeah, I mean, I was out of the band. I think they had a guy play a few shows. Oh, um, with that. Ball, was, you know, awesome. I had to show that you know, good luck finding a good bass player, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I came back uh, very very swiftly. I can't remember. I, they actually had me fill in for the guy because he was so embarrassing. It was right. a New York show. <laughs> right, right. And um, I played, yeah, it was like a CV. It was like some kind of fast thing. Like so I filled in. From- and then from there, like, you guys get, had to get rid of him. And I remember um, he came to the Wetlands show and had to, like, give me, it was really my amp. It was the amp that yeah, I, yeah. it was my amp, but it was paid for with band money, so I didn't give it back. But then he had to show up and hand me the amp. And uh, he he watched the show. It was really sad. I hated this. I saw him in the audience, like yeah. like trying to get into it and stuff. And, and he had um, just played like three days. Not earlier. to talk bad, you know. I mean, he probably liked the band, but um, it just was really an uncomfortable experience for me, particularly. <laughs> <laughs> You're the real victim here when you quit the band. <laughs> what came first, the idea for the cover of the album, the name of the album, or the song imprint? The song imprint and uh, the cover of the album. Yeah, that was that was Tim's idea. But, you know, the, the 
the lyrics are always Tim. Song titles are always Tim. And um, the, the album cover idea was Tim, too, because that was his, uh, that's his head. <laughs> right. Was it also his idea to be the only person pictured on the back of the CD? No, no, no. Well, I think that picture was taken from the uh, Warp Tour. But, yeah. you know, you know, you know, what's weird is some bands have a lot of, um, you know, the first album was, again, this is all just like results of the first album. <laughs> we had so much difficulty getting an, uh, uh, an album cover for the first album. And then the second album imprint, we were really happy with how it came out. We yeah. were like, that, that looks cool. They just sent us a layout. And I think we were just like, instead of arguing or changing anything, I think it was yeah, just like, just say yes, because to go through the painstaking, I don't like that picture, move this to the left. Move, like it just wasn't worth it at that time. It, the whole attitude of imprint was like, go, 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 go. And it, and it, we should have just kept that a whole, yeah, <laughs> a whole that, like just do everything and don't look back and just keep moving, 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 moving. Yeah, I think a big part of the cover too, is that like on the first record, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if you remember this or not, but this, there's the green drip. But there was also like the pink trip. There no, was, I don't. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't. You see, I get to. I get to make fun of the green drip because that green drip was chosen during that like month I wasn't yeah. in the band at the time. I think what with the drip crap, we're we're thinking like make something that looks like almost like uh, the underground uh, New York rave scene bullshit. You know, like almost like uh, we're going to be so different because it's going to be. Uh, more EDM looking instead of heavy metal and, and they had the drip, but drip in different colors. And I wish to this day I had those different uh, record covers because all of them just looked like really bad Frankie Bones covers. Like, <laughs> but the imprint actually looked cool, you know, as a, as a record cover, you know, like when we saw the actual picture and then what the art department did to it to make it a little bit more uh, questionable and almost like, what is that kind of thing? Um, right. So Mike he, just said that it's, uh, it's, you know, Tim's head, but can you just tell me a little bit more about what the cover is for people that don't know? Uh, it's his, uh, face from the hospital after getting slashed, uh, in a fight. Unfortunately, that happened on my birthday, believe it or not. Uh, we were at a club and, and unfortunately, you know, things happened and he got his face halfway cut off. And, uh, it was crazy because that picture is, uh, pretty much after, you know, the I guess the plastic surgery and everything, uh, mid-course, I guess, maybe. And then, no, that was before. It's from before. The picture, the original picture is very graphic. You don't, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> you don't want to see it. Yeah, it's really bloody. So they took it and were able to manipulate it a little bit. So it's almost questionable what it is. But, you know, if you saw the actual photograph or were explained what it is, I think you could clearly see that it's a face that's been cut. Every part you see the dark red, that's, that's blood and... The skin and on top is his cheek. That is the, what the, if you didn't know, that is what the lyrics are uh, about as well to that song. Yeah, and print itself is, is all about that incident. So, you know, it's it's almost, I think it's good too, because, it's you know, you talk about negatives turning into positives. I think it's bold of Tim at the time to be able to put himself out there that much, you know. That's uh, obviously a life-changing experience, and, you know, to be like, okay, make, put this on the freaking cover. It's crazy. Yeah, that's kind of a testament uh, and a trademark of Vision of Disorder anyway, right? It's just kind of how open and honest Tim's lyrics are, even if maybe sometimes they're a little abstract, like you just mentioned, as far as mm -hmm. you might not immediately hear the song imprint and be like, oh, this is about him getting cut in the face. But you can get, get that whatever he's saying, he means very passionately, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think it also with Tim, it's funny on that record, 
one thing I can say is, is because of that tight unit we were at the time, we were also writing the songs um, organically and uh, on the spot because of what Tim was doing. So there were a couple times in that record where um, I can distinctly remember being like, okay, what part comes next? And it would, most of the time it would always be, okay, we're going to change the part. You know, we never really repeated much on input, but like, I remember because of what Tim was doing, feeling like, okay, this is where it can go. The next part, you know, uh, like the break, the first breakdown in landslides like that, you know, like Tim singing that, why you two whole yeah. Then going into that next breakdown was literally just because Tim did that in the moment. It was, what can we do next? You know, you know, musically on imprint, the way I remember every practice session was you come in with a riff. Mike comes in with a riff. I come in with a riff. And it was almost like challenging the next guy. Like I'm going to play this riff top this riff and then he'd he'd top it and then it would be like my turn you gotta yeah. <laughs> you top this or i'm gonna play this all right now i'm gonna <laughs> or or maybe one guy would be like okay so that's that riff but what if you play it this way what if yeah <laughs> and you know like mike i can say fleisch is is a huge part of my writing because i can i can't tell you how many riffs i come in with where it's been like maybe the percentage of the riff that's used is about like 75 percent, but that extra 25 percent is fleisch saying no, what if you tried it this way? You're almost like reverse it, you know, do your ending first and do your beginning at the end, you know, and it always ends up being a better riff. So, you know, that's just part of writing together for and, a long time. And, and, and the deciding factor is always Brendan. He, yeah. he tells us whether it's good. <laughs> he says, no, <laughs> but it's, it's tough with Brendan because you can play, you know, you play two notes and he makes it, he can make it sound good, but it's still up to him whether the riff is going <laughs> to, it's very <laughs> obvious when Brendan yeah. likes it or doesn't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why it's hard. it's very hard because Mike is and and you know and some of us are more sensitive than others. Like Mike is very sensitive with his riffs. Some of us like Matt. If you if you throw out one of his riffs, that just means that he's gonna he's gonna come back with an even harder. You know what I mean? That's like the the best thing you can do for him is tell him that riff's not good because then you're guaranteed he's gonna write. <laughs> okay, he's gonna riffs. come back with a with twenty more good riffs, but you know, but Brendan, it's hard because Brendan's the ultimate is the ultimate judge. So yeah. he's like the guy you stand. He has the gavel, you know. So it's. <laughs> and then, you know, there's also I feel for Brendan at times because that lot through that writing session was, unfortunately, him having to hear the three of us explain to him what we think drums could be on these riffs. So that there's nothing worse I can imagine than seeing me being like, Brendan, try like, like the, the stupidest thing of all time is I promised me writing drums for Brendan, you know? So just from an artist perspective, I could see Brendan getting frustrated in that as well. You know, just the idea of these three guys almost like, how about this? It was always, there was never a time where it was like, okay, that's good. Let's stick with that and just keep doing that. It was always, like Mike said, it just kept on changing. Everything was just moving forward, moving forward, never stopping. And that's how we wrote it so fast. Yeah, an interesting thing, too, about the album, and you kind of uh, touched on it, that, you know, not a whole lot of uh, repetition on it, but there is things that are catchy and hooky. You know, even um, vocally, I don't think that, Tim, you know, it's not really too many choruses like you would really explore on from Bliss to Devastation, but almost Tim's just vocal, regardless if he's repeating a you know phrase or refrain or whatever from earlier on the song becomes like part of the hook and some of the riffs become part of the hook as well just like you know you kind of latch onto those so there's lots of catchy parts but to your uh to your point earlier there's not a whole lot that just are repetitive like a a traditional chorus or something like that would be it also comes down to, to a lot of that 
that uh, the Brendan influence also is he well he refuses to play the same feel yeah. even if it's on the same album like he's like oh we did that feel like you know four songs ago like it's just like it's just a feel for a part like you play you know <laughs> you can just go to a straight beat for a minute but you know that that that's credit to also the time in music and the time the bands we were playing with like you know where you're your comp it's not competition but your camaraderie with bands is is candiria and earth crisis and, and there's so many what's that neurosis, neurosis there's so many bands you know exploring different uh rhythms and different things and and challenging and we wanted to be more you know we wanted to also be badass musicians rather <laughs> you know at the same time we had that we wanted to to challenge um ourselves and listeners musically and not just be again like i said we were revolting against that one note at a time shit that was coming out at that time i think if you ask kennedy right now does matt play what you are correctly you still say no (laughs) (laughs) i can attest to that because i tried out for vod on dto and um well first of all you guys didn't tell me that the goddamn seven inch was tuned uh half step up right right I tried out for a song a half step off for the goddamn they they gave so I had the seven awful. inch. I didn't know so the, the little tidbit about the DTO seven inch is that Kennedy tuned his guitar wrong and recorded the parts. <laughs> so they all had the tune. So Matt had the tune wrong. And <laughs> so the, I tried out for a song. So I was playing everything a half step up. And then they tell me after I played the song, like, oh, these rips are here, these rips are here, because the I was like <laughs> That's not where it is on the recording. So, and that <laughs> thing about that pressure too, because if you're playing something on one part of the neck, and then in the audition you're like, "All right, well, well now something I sounds gotta, off. I don't think that bad. Now I got to play everything <laughs> in a different part of the instrument. Like, you know, that's a testament to his playing. So it's like, all right, this dude just pulled it off. You know, he's he's the bass player. It's so funny too, because I can honestly say with Brendan and Fleisch, there's never a time in the beginning of the band where it was like there was another option. There weren't other people. It was just, we were, you know, four piece for a while. And then it was like, we get, you know, even with Brendan, there was a drummer before Brendan, but it was, we were a bullshit band. When we got Brendan, it was just like, that's the drummer. When we tried out Fleisch, that's the basis. There was never a question of anyone else or anything. We were just like, that sounds correct. So that's why we did it. You've referenced the song Landslide a couple times, which is by far my favorite song on the album. Maybe my favorite Vision of Disorder song in general. And I love that song so much because the whole time, you know, going back to everything I've said about it, the, the album just sounds so angry and like, you know, kind of uh, uh, this crescendo of rage. And also that song sounds like it's barely being held together, like at any moment it could fall apart, you know, but it's also very precise. And I'm sure that's all by design. So uh, I'm sure you uh, won't take that the wrong way either. Or maybe you will and we'll fight about it. <laughs> I love that song. And also the coolest part is at, as it's building up, it ends with that single note riff, which really gets me going. And not only is that like the heaviest part but on the heaviest part that's when tim is like crooning the most soulfully to just really conflict me i don't even know if i'm angry anymore i don't know if i feel cathartic and uh is that a song that resonates a lot with you guys too yeah to this day it's one of my favorite songs i've ever even brought to the table uh, that to me, and I think Brendan too, is one of his favorites. We, it's a, in my opinion of that time and that record, that's the one that, uh, it, it sums up the whole, okay, this is going to be very hard to play, but still really original kind of thought process of like making sure that everything's changing 
uh, really not repetition that much, but also that anger and kind of rage. It's it's everything summed up in that one song. If, the, if, the funny part about the rage part, I don't know if you remember this. There's an influence from when we were on tour with Earth Crisis. Do you remember this, the Florida thing? No, it'll kick me. When he says, uh, show your face. face. Uh, there's a part in the middle of Landslide where Tim's like, show your face, whatever. And it comes as a reference, I, I think. I don't know, did he improv that? Yeah, I think it? he just th- threw in as a little tidbit for us. I love us. that. Uh, there, there's a, there was a time in Earth Crisis where we were on tour, and I think the, both bands like fought the whole audience because it's one place in Florida. And... Uh, at the time, I think Carl from Earth Crisis was shocking. Nah, it was the riff. If you were going to say, what does the VOD riff sound like? I would say landslide. Like that's the quintessential VOD riff for me personally. On that song and on um, 12 Steps, there's a lot of like decay on the guitar. And now when you're telling me that you guys had to correct some of the <laughs> the uh, the toning, was that to mask that? Because it seems like they're, it's kind of random and to only be on those two songs. It's it's noise, but like purposeful noise. Like it's, we're doing it on purpose. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it definitely contributes to the chaos that we're talking about throughout the, all of this. But uh, I just noticed that it was only on those couple songs. I always remembered it on uh, 12 Steps, but just... Guitar sound should be notably different on 12 Steps because it is in the sour key of A, which was very heavy at the time, but it turned out to be everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's also different guitars. So, you know, like I'm I'm using a uh, like Stratocaster and that tuning. And the, the sour a- key of A is so funny. <laughs> So the first time I ever heard a band tuned down to A was in a review for a band called Rigor Sardonicus. And, uh, you know, they had a death metal picture of the, you know, it's always like the guy's head was back and it was, uh, it was like they tuned down to the sour key of A. And I remember thinking, A? Like, holy cow, like, who the hell can play an A? An a? Yeah. It's so low. But you know what's funny is I don't think if you hear those songs and the way Sardi recorded them, I don't think anyone would think, oh, that's the same tuning as like corn, new metal, and all that crap. They don't sound it because of how um, technical we're playing in those in those riffs. That was yeah, that was definitely something we wanted to do with. Yeah. We're going to tune down to A, like you know, like stupid corn or other bands that will remain nameless. But we're going to not go do 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 You know, we're going to play like we play. And also, down. and also, I think the main reason of why is because we thought at the time. There is nothing on the planet that could be done heavier than Sepultura Roots. Like, they're the quintessential version of that simplicity of low tuning on Roots. In my opinion, still to this day, there's nothing yeah. that's heavier than that. I'll record. say that is another reason why we didn't like the sound of our first album. Because right before we went into the studio, they played us Roots before it came. You know, this is before. This is right when we were signing with Roadrunner. We got to we got to hear Roots, and I remember we were just like. This is the, like I don't know. We might have heaviest. to start over. We might have to start over. Something like that. Happiest <laughs> thing I've ever heard yeah. in my life. And then when our when we, we listened to that, and then we heard our album, we were just like, no, like we, <laughs> we wanted to sound like this. <laughs> I remember we seeing, heavy. and it's funny too because I remember seeing Max in the hallway at Roadrunner and being like, like dude, like Roots is incredible. He's like, no, like I love that song element. I remember, being like, no, he, yeah, shit. he heard uh, Max loved the demo. We did our demo for Roadrunner. We did it at Legend Studios where we did our. Right, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, yeah. the the these guys did the yellow demo, but um, he got to hear Element and six six six, which I think we released the demo versions on. Is that on Resurrecting Reality? It might be the B side. 
but we recorded those there and him Max Cavalera complimenting us on, I think it was called, uh, we called it, it's Ways to Destroy One's Ambition, but I think at the time it might have been just called 666 or something like that. And he was like, that song, 666. (laughs) I remember also being like, asking him specifically, I'm like, because I wanted to know, like, how did you get that guitar sound on Roots? You know, like, what is it? I just remember his answer was so, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't like take anything from it because I just was confused. He's like, a lot of pedals. Now he said old Marshalls. It's like old lots Marshalls. of pedals. Lots of pedals. And I was just like, <laughs> but then I looked down at his shoe and he ha- and it was being held on by duct tape. And I got con- <laughs> I got confused. <laughs> Earth Price would always be like, You guys met Max Cavalera? Yeah, every time I meet him, he always says the same thing to us. This is the real shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh so going back to you mentioned resurrecting reality. I don't want to neglect your question. Uh, that that was the uh, label's idea of getting us some street cred back in between our first album and our next album, Revelation, to put that out as like an in-between release. So that was unheard of for Roadrunner to actually, well, uh, to, to mean to talk about Roadrunner, they owned all our, we sold them all of our publishing for $500 and the rights to all of our merchandise for $500. We, <laughs> we had to pay them, you know, Blue Grape was there. That's an important part of Meet Meep history is that they also owned Blue Grape. And you, in order to sign to Roadrunner, you had to sign their merchandise deal. They forced us to buy our own merchandise from them. So it was $11 a t-shirt, sweatshirt was $20. Uh, our windbreakers that we sold were $25. So we were pretty much losing. Because we couldn't go to a sh- hardcore show and sell shirts, if we sold them for $20, people would, would flip out that we were sell out, selling shirts for $20. And um, the, our jerseys were like $30, and they, they forced us to, to buy them from them. Also, our publishing to those two albums, like, you know, those two, those, those were just re-released on vinyl. I don't know if I ever told you this. We weren't told they were coming out. I never, none of us got a copy. We see no anything from that, and there was no, there's no anything. <laughs> like, that's, that's how, so, you know, that's how that label at that time is criminal. And, you know, to say we're idiots for signing to that, I signed to Roadrunner. I was 18 years old and that was my dream come true. Sepultura, Road, Fear Factory, Typo. <laughs> and, you know, if you're 18 and, you're, and you have a contract for, for your favorite label, are you going to not sign it? Roger Murray from Knox the Front somehow got my, my parents' phone number. <laughs> and right before we signed to Roadrunner, he called me up and he was like, don't do it. Don't do it. And I was just like, I don't remember this day. My mom was like, Matt, Roger Murray's on the phone. Like, <laughs> like what the fuck? You know, like it just didn't. every band was like, I heard it's bad. Don't do it. Don't do it. And we were all like, what do you mean? Like, I, I thought everyone was just like jealous, you know, like, well, yeah. not, I was, I was like, what, what? Fair fact would be separate. Like, now, now, now I think about it. I'm like, wow, Roger yeah. Murray was like really being a great guy. Yeah. Helping us. <laughs> People and, were like, giving us real advice. <laughs> actual real like industry advice and like we're dumb young kids being like no way but so so anyway going back to this whole resurrecting reality thing which i guess is not the fourth time um you know we, we were such more we were so traumatized by the poor production of our debut album <laughs> that we thought that there was no producer out there that really could understand <laughs> so we <laughs> went to demo some songs First, we went to Smash Studios with our good friend Klaus. Oh, and right, right, right. And we attempted to record uh, just oh. clone. Just clone, or did we do two songs? 
Uh, we did two, but they sounded so I don't remember bad. if we did. I don't remember what we did, but we had our friend we brought to the studio because we were like, this guy, he, he got he a good sound. Like a he, well, he, he got a good, he, he placed with his band, he placed the boombox in a really good spot in, <laughs> in, the, in the studio. <laughs> and he recorded a good um, sound for his own band. So we thought he'd be good enough. Who is his band? Produced. I don't know who Klaus is. Uh, <laughs> Klaus. Now he, uh, the band actually ended up becoming a band called Amazing Device. I don't know if you ever heard of. Yeah, Birth. your brother's in it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had a good ear and he had the right idea, so we thought, listen, let's give this guy a chance. <laughs> so we went this has the- been the problem. Beauty's done their whole entire career. We always been- so we go to the studio. First of all, it takes like four hours because a radio station keeps coming through the um, snare drum uh, microphone. Like it won't stop and we can't start recording. But anyway, so we finally get it going. And then um, we record the songs. And then the guy, the engineer in the studio was kind of insulted that we brought Kraus along with us. So like (laughs) first he goes, all right, so uh, it was time to mix it. He's like, you know, when you did a demo back in the day, you record it, you mix it same day right there, sitting right there in the control room. So he, uh, <laughs> Josh is like, he's like, so how do you want to, how do you want to do this? First, Josh goes, what I don't want is, I don't want a lot of compression. And then the guy goes, can I ask why? <laughs> and he goes, because I don't want it to sound compressed. <laughs> and then we knew we were in trouble. So then the guy just wheels his chair back and points yeah. to the, uh, to the, you know, to the, the uh, mixing board. <laughs> Kraus sits down and starts turning knobs. And anyway, somehow we can we convinced ourselves that it was it was good enough. We brought it home. We went into the basement. My brother, we always called my brother's basement. It was the basement of my mom's house, my brother's room. We were like, yo, it sounds it sounds sick. And then we hit it play on the table. I heard it. You couldn't even hear it. It was so it was so embarrassing so that so we had another friend but that comes out sounding good who who kind of knew what he was doing he worked at sam not to you know insult sam ash but the whole sam ashy thing he previously worked at sam ash and had some experience uh, record yeah he knew how to record and again we were like we need to work with a guy we know because nobody knows what we're really trying to do (laughs) and we made the um we did soul craft uh, and um clone. clone and but the soul craft we did with him wasn't the version that we released on the bad brains tribute i think that was what we did with greg gordon yeah yeah because we re- re-recorded soul craft with greg gordon who was the engineer on it right and that's all like at that point in our lives eight months is like three years worth of yeah. stuff like we record like we record we did all we were still playing shows kind of here and there throughout that whole period there's just a lot a lot going on <laughs> during that time. But the uh, the Revelation Records, Resurrecting Reality 7-inch, was kind of a way to, to, to keep us grounded in that hardcore scene so we could kind of re- reset and be respected again. So the singer for Superjoint Ritual is also on this album? Yes, he's also a yeah, Superjoint Ritual. And uh, what else is he in? Scour. And uh, what else Down. is that guy? down yeah so um all right so that was a connection we made on uh ozfest well well here's another thing we were also we finally had managed so by the time we got to ozfest we finally had management and um we had this manager sandy boardman who worked under concrete management which shelter's manager which she also managed shelter they were um they worked uh concrete management managed pantera and white zombie 
So, um, you know, that was a, a connection we had to Pantera. And so on the um, Pantera tour on the OzFest, we did connect with, uh, with Phil. He would come on our bus at night and hang out because, he, you know, he used to, he actually used to tour. The, the Pantera guys would go off on their buses and he would spend time because he was kind of, I mean, I don't know, tour, they had a female tour manager, Neurosis. He was kind of seeing her. So he'd hang more with the, you know, he was one of those guys. I hang with the, with the, with the second stage and the roadies. Cause I'm a real, I'm a real man. <laughs> so he'd come hang out with us and we would actually do, he'd come on the bus. He'd uh, party with us yeah. and we would, we would listen to like TV theme songs and guess the theme song. And he'd go, <laughs> you'd guess the theme song, right? And you'd get the fill of different strokes, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Different strokes. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> But um, they hit it off, so which was good. So Tim, and then Tim went for um, Phil used to do a um, House of Horrors, uh, yeah, like a, a haunted mansion thing in Louisiana, and he invited Tim down on Halloween to work to like work there and like scare people. Which is yeah, I guess a lot of people don't know about uh, the Phil Anselmo House of Horrors. <laughs> but uh, so while he was down there. But he asked him if he'd sing on the album. And I think we had to pay him one dollar. There had to be an official exchange of money for it to be done. It was only like one dollar or one hundred dollars or something like totally just arbitrary just to make it like an official uh, deal. But the funny thing is, is that that actual song isn't even like written until like the week that Tim goes to New Orleans. If you remember. Yeah. So we found I think we found out he accepted to do it. And then we were kind of like, all right, I guess we need I guess we need a song to. uh, I guess we need a song for him to say on. So, and we threw that together really quick. Yeah, the funny thing about that song is that literally by the river, by the river. Yeah, the the uh, the verse in "By the River" predates Fleisch even in the band. It goes back to a song that we had in the like, high school days with me and Kennedy uh, called "Clear the Way." That I remember on the eight track we had. I remember uh, at the time with the Eddie Van Halen guitar. I, I I did a weird tuning on landslide that I also do on the, the, the by the river track. And uh, it's just basically taking your B string and tuning it a half note higher. So every time you put your finger flat, you're having a dissonance of, of notes. It sounds like uh, just, uh, you know, uh, wrong. It's, it's, it's uh, out, of, out of tune. So uh, I remember just playing the old riff on the four track and then playing that dissonance under it. And sure enough, that became that, verse and by the river which is one of my favorite things in the whole record yeah yeah you know when you yeah. the, the, the surprising thing was always like oh we we, we put not much effort we threw this yeah. together so fast and we and we love this song even and though another, the last riff is like yeah no, i was gonna say it's another quintessential vod riff if you ask me and that's that's the maddie uh that's another quintessential VOD. that happens though if you remember only because we had played it a few times. I remember mm-hmm. practice and then like Tim had done at the end of the song, this like ridiculously long scream thing. And we were all still resonating. And it was like, okay, it feels like the next part happens. And I swear to God, there's no other version of that riff. That's just what happened at that time. It just, and I can say that about almost all of imprints kind of chaotic moments is it's just literally what we played at the time. Improv yes. style. It's not like uh Oh, let's work on this. Like at that moment, it was just dun 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 dun. dun, dun. That's why. That's why some of those riffs, yeah, they do, as you described, sound like they're hanging on by a thread, they fall apart, and uh, they literally could fall apart. Because <laughs> it was like, what did you just play? And it's like I don't know. Like I think it's this. <laughs>
And do you want to take this time to apologize for all the metalcore that you influenced with that ending riff on that song? <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. It, it's been and, painful. <laughs> <laughs> now, famously, of course, that you've left out is that in addition to the dollar money exchange for For the River, For the River, for By the River, that you got Phil Anselmo a pair of autographed boxing gloves by... Yes. WrestleMania 14 special guest enforcer Mike Tyson. So how did you acquire these gloves? It was uh, one of our best Ozfest moments was at uh, with Aunt Phil's bus watching the uh, Tyson yeah, so, uh, Tyson Holyfield. Holyfield when he bit his ear off. We were, we were actually in Vegas. So that was the day of Ozfest Vegas. UNLV Stadium. We played outside in the parking lot that day. That day. It was over. It was 110, I remember. Um, there was two shows where, I mean, that was one of them where the uh, Brennan put his foot, because he used to play barefoot on his hi-hat. He was in the sun. He was like, ah! Like it, <laughs> it burned his foot. But we happened to be in Las Vegas the day of the fights, but Pantera we, got it on their big order, the pay-per-view on, on the pay-per-view on the bus. So, like, it was almost like we were, you know, I don't know, I was a big boxing fan also. Like, it was seeing how infatuated he was with boxing. So almost like it's cooler, I think, that he's on the on the record. And to give him a gift like that, it's kind of like, okay, look, he's something he actually likes instead of just being like, you know, here's here's $5,000 or something, you know. I think it's much cooler. And I, from what I remember, even seeing him afterwards, he's like, I still got those gloves, bro. You know, it was it was like, uh, it was always, you know, something you remember. So, But also, so going back to this concrete management connection to Pantera is, um, so after OzFest, we were supposed to go on tour with Pan and do an arena tour with Pantera. So I was supposed to be our leading to, to the Pantera arena tour for there. I think they would put out that live album uh, official something 101 proof or something, whatever the hell it was. But um, one day we come out of the bus and we see Vinnie Paul <laughs> with his arms around Raina kind of just swinging her around in a circle, you know, a band she's in. Um, the look of love was there. And, and uh, within a week, we had found out that we were off the tour. Well, first, I was going into the bathroom one morning, and Phil grabs me and just goes, all right, man, just, just don't blame me for ruining your career. <laughs> and he's like, just keep doing what you're doing. Listen to bands like Discharge instead of Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> and I was like, what? And then <laughs> we all took that as like, all right, I guess we're off the tour. Yeah. And we were off the tour. We were replaced by our arch nemesis. But again, Pantera, the rest of the band, I think, did because it was like that whole Phil thing. If you're friends with Phil, then you're not friends with the rest of the band. And, uh, you know, I, I think um, Vinnie Paul is like the Lars, right? Was like the Lars of Pantera. So he makes the decisions of who's, who's going to be torn with them and who's going to be uh, doing stuff. And like, because Phil would spend time with us, those guys like didn't like us because it's like the whole, you know. Yeah, but there's other things too. I mean, we were we were pretty fucked up. We were like in those right, days. I'm not even gonna talk about well, yeah, we can't. Yeah, talk I mean, didn't about you get thrown off of Ozfest like the first day or something like that? It's yeah, not we, like this was the first strike against you as the ring. We were the craziest of, of all of them. And there's reasons <laughs> why in our in our fun times we got along with Phil and Selma also. With the time we were kind of raging, like I said, we were part of the New York rave scene. Stupid stuff was going on. So. When when neurosis starts uh, yeah. being scared of you guys, then you <laughs> you know maybe you got some problems. 
that's cool though. But like you said, that there's like a, a backstory to why you would get, well, it's not just like Phil likes Mike Tyson. You guys are in Vegas while he's getting his, he's biting ears off. I mean, also the sickest time I, and I can say for Phil too, that was one of the funniest things to see. Like it's like Phil and Somo reacting to the fight going on after Tyson bites Holyfield's ears. Like that, the weirdest just, moment. Scott Ian's there. He's just the, like, what the fuck's going that's on? That's the weirdest here? moment in sports. One of the weirdest moments in sports history, right? Like a guy actually biting a part of a guy's ear off. Like, and we're in this, it just was just such a, just Surreal. to be, to feel like, oh, this is happening like right here. Like what? <laughs> it was just a weird day. Going. What a weird day. We, we started off the imprint tour playing a lot of oh, the songs. Man. And then like, because people weren't like moving to them much. We were like, oh, these aren't good for live shows. It was like, we have to, we have to have a pit, bro. Like we can't just have, you know, <laughs> we can't just play the songs that we, you know, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it also wasn't, it also wasn't received poorly, but it was definitely received uh, confusingly, maybe like it was, people were a little bit like, well, what is this? Yeah. People that like the first album necessarily weren't into this, but you know, over time, I think it's matured and, and people's, started to yeah people as the years went on more and more people were like oh that album's great you know but right at the time it, it caught people kind of off going and and um you know we wanted to we thought it was a we were so proud of it and again that was another quick touring cycle roadrunner was just like no we want you guys to go into the studio and make another album which was probably the right advice because when bands are going through that if you look at most bands, it's like when they're having a, a, a hot streak, it's like just get them in and have them do as much material. It's like when you look back at the history of bands, it's like, yes, they should really just do as much material, record as much material as possible during those those hot years. You know what I mean? And and they were right. And, and our budget was going to be was our third album was going to be really good. We probably could have got like a sweet producer and, uh, you know. But the record was it's weird, too, because I feel like at the time we coming post uh, imprint. I think it's like almost we weren't even ready ourselves just because of how crazy uh, the process was for imprint. You know, like the whole thing is very, we're very chaotic at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the song clone, which like we talked about is on that seven inch and kind of a, an earlier track. The version on that seven inch is a, a little bit more standard VOD, but it almost, it, it borders on like a rap rock on the album version and, uh, you know, going back to me saying, you know, what I know Dave Sardi from is doing the Orange Nine album. Mm-hmm. That's something that you were conscious of. And were you um, uh, like you were no. very you were rebellious, like you did not want to be a new metal band, despite the fact that you are the pioneers of the genre. So did you yeah. want to not have that song on there no. at any point? I'm going to tell you that you are influenced. You are post influenced by hearing that song as rap rock. No, but that but, song too is funny because I think at the time, again, I, in the studio playing it live, I don't really recall Tim like sounding like he was rapping. Clone could be one of those things because it sounds <laughs> like Tim's rapping. It does, you know. To me, but, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's um, one of the weaker songs on the record. I think it's just a different. It, it song never came out the way like. It never, even on imprint, Clone was a song we had high hopes for. And it just yeah. never, for some reason, when we recorded it, it never came out the way we wanted. That's one of the, it's not disappointing because it's not a bad song, but I, we always had really high hopes for it. And it just never quite uh, came off like the way we thought it was going to. Oh, you know, like we were in the, and when you're in the midst of it, you don't know that it's turning into this, like, um, you know, big shorts and uh, Arne Sunglasses. 
How does it feel well, whole, to be stealing from the one who feels? Right. And isn't the whole ending fake fuck, fake fuck, yeah. fake fuck, fake <laughs> fuck? The best line. So maybe, you know what? Maybe, it, maybe he was doing a little bit of the uh, rapper in there, and I was interpreted it differently. Jada Bloom, the ending of the album, seems like a song that... They are called Java Bloom, which uh, a brewery named after the song Jada Bloom. Wow, that is incredible. Well, then that even further uh, reinforces my theory or the simple fact that you guys are very happy. You look, like that song a lot. seems like even throughout all the years, you know, that's maintained its place in the set list from Imprint. And, you know, it's the big album closer. It seems like kind of like even I mentioned at the very beginning, it has a somewhat different tone for the rest of the album, but doesn't feel like out of place or weird. It's just like, it, you know, it's a, it's the resolution of the journey you've taken throughout it. seems like it maybe even has some extra elements in there, like an organ or something like that. It's got some sort of uh, synthesized or, or electronic uh, ending. So tell me why you guys love that song so much. Uh. To me, it's it's nice to have like almost like a, a breath uh, on on that song. Like it's like the verses are just like they're these. Uh, I feel like in the verse of that song, which I call the verse, the clean part, whatever. Um, we achieved what I think we were always trying to uh, go for an alternative because beauty was always into like chains addiction, house chains, all these things. But even, and Radiohead especially also. But I feel like in that verse, we actually achieved an alternative sound where if you just play that verse, it doesn't sound like um, metal or hardcore or anything. It just sounds like alternative. Um, everything else sounds like crazy, screaming, you know, maniacal shit. But um, to me, that's why that uh, means so much to me, I think, is that we actually organically did that. Again, it's not a thing that we uh, intended. It just literally happened that was one of those songs that came together and like that was one yeah. practice yeah it was one of those songs where we just put it together in literally one one day and and it uh it, i think it surprised us all that it actually and, and it, we had high hopes for it and it came out it was one of those things where oh it came out even better than i thought it was going to be and i think we achieved something there because we always had not to go back and, and this is my psyche now is that we had a lot of peers, especially from where we came from on Long Island, that had this whole um, like sunny day real estate influence. And they were kind of elitist in the fact that we had kind of a meathead fan base mentality with the mosh pits and the, uh, the tough music and the VOD for all my boys type uh, thing. But I think we really proved that we could also have a sensitive, a soft, sensitive side. And it the um tasteful and not cheesy and kind of touching upon something almost new um in a way you know what i mean like we, we, and i felt like it, it just really you know we, we just were successful in pulling that off and, and it was I something think, to be proud of for and us. in the end it's funny because in the end of that song the reason why it's going as long as it is is i i think because of tim being that style of vocalist where you don't really know what he's going to do um really from each practice to the next it really did kind of change um it i think it happened because of tim himself going off on almost a tangent of his own thing his own improv like i even when i heard that the first time 
when it was recorded. I didn't know Tim was singing that way. And, you know, it was a surprise to me. Most of the vocals, to be honest, uh, the sung vocals. Now, I, I remember when he was when he was practicing in the studio. And I was like, I heard some really good stuff. And I remember yeah. thinking like, oh, shit, I hope he like remembers that. I hope he yeah. remembers that. that comes with it doesn't sound like the first, like it's so paranoid. Again, the the, uh, the damage done by the first album. Like, I hope it doesn't sound like, like that. Tim like, is so improv <laughs> that he sometimes wouldn't remember what he did that was good. And it would be like sometimes, okay, well, that's similar, but it wasn't as good as that one time you did this. That's know? why I swear the first time we played Element in the Baldwin studio that the first verse he had was even better than the one we recorded. Yeah, had more of like a But um, no, I, I, you know, going more into this, I, I really feel like that was one of those songs that we were proud of. And I think in our sets too, it's kind of like we always have this nonstop, like I, when we play sets, you know, some people like to have the nonstop banger after banger. After, like you have to, you got to lighten it up. You got to slow it down. You can't just have a set of, you know one after the other of all these high tempo it's high tempo you got to breathe a little bit you know and it's one of those songs that let but that you can take a you can take a deep breath to, i also feel know? like there's bands that uh you gotta be willing to do it and have the balls to do it and at that time i think because of how heavy imprint is i think it takes like you, you have to be as crazy as imprint is to be able to pull off the lightness that is the jada bloom moment right. and i think it takes a certain uh you know, amount of time for a band to be able to want to do that and actually take that chance. You know, it's not just, you're not just doing the metalcore bullshit like we were talking about before that you're just going to sing a part here. You know, it's artistic. It's an artistic it's, decision. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the first time that um, someone combined Phil Anselmo with Sunny Day Real Estate. So after the album <laughs> comes out, the tour of the, the Triple Meep Attack of Sepultura touring for Against, Earth Crisis, touring for their one Roadrunner album, Breed the Killers, and Vision of Disorder, touring on the newly released imprint. Can you tell me about that tour? I know you're big Sepultura fans. I know that this is kind of a different version of Sepultura, but it's still, they're still the kings. I mean, Sepultura, really for me, like these guys love Pantera and Slayer. And like my thrash band is fucking Sepultura. Like they were always, you know, even though they, you know, not to say anything bad about Pablo, but, um, you know, they don't have a big, bass representative but just those riffs for me are like and the you know it's really igor for me i mean the riffs obviously are sick but the combination of um the feel igor gives their riffs always connected with me so sepultura for me was always i was like oh like that's a thrash band for me you know it, like, it's funny too because with me i i was obviously you know coming up in the the metal first and the hardcore thing you know biohazard madball all these things and then i saw that sepultura was obviously influenced by biohazard i think on the chaos cd stuff a uh, little bit of influence in the riff there. And then, you know, you fast forward a few years later and like on that tour, I got to play Refuse Resist with Sepultura, like, I don't know, like, like, 10 so times, many times. Yeah. times. It's amazing. And it's incredible, you know, like to be able to feel and play with uh, Igor's drum style. Yeah. It's just like, holy I shit, it's real. We got to sound check element with Igor. Yeah, at that yeah. place across from the Dom. I always forget what it is. The club across from the Dahmer Hotel. The Rave in Milwaukee? Yeah, it was a really cool Dream moment control. for us because... Uh, that's also our first real, I think, big tour that wasn't something like Ozfest, where we felt the labels actually really putting some money into us being able to go on tour and let us just be musicians instead of it being like, all right, well, you can get this kind of crappy van that will, you know, you're going to still have to drive. Like, 
that was our first real like uh big well, yeah we felt experience. like they were support like they were you know obviously three program bands we felt like all right they definitely are behind this this tour you know they it wasn't like oh fucking not gonna give you time to sound check or it, you know they were so accommodating everyone wanted to hang out it was like very very friendly atmosphere and everything like and because I'm playing the Ernie uh, the uh, Ernie Ball Eddie Van Halen I, I find out that Andreas loves Van Halen and I had remember the time best of Van Halen came out yeah <laughs> and still to this day I swear to God Andreas stole my fucking no he Van stole Halen. your Van Halen transcription book. yeah yeah the, yeah. the tablature book <laughs> so still still to this day I know he's got that book. Well, you guys had already had camaraderie with Earth Crisis way before yeah. then, right? On the on the drip, and um, you know, we had never met them prior to those tours to support the the first album. Downside, and we, right? yeah, and no, no, we first met them and did some dates, just us, and we were very we didn't know because we only heard Earth Crisis. They had these militant, straight edge vegan guys. Like we were like, I don't know. In our first show with them, we were uh, played in Connecticut. It was this place called Tuxedo Junction. The bad experience for me because I was only 18 or 19 and you had to be 21 to actually go in the club. So I was able to play the show, but then I had to go sit in the restaurant for the after soundtrack and for the rest of the show, I had to sit by myself in the restaurant. But um, before Earth Crisis went on, like the promoter, well, the promoter was a straight edge. I think I came on the stage and was like, what do we want? Animal liberation. When do we want it? No! and like the whole crowd started screaming i was like this is these guys are probably like you know like crazy like we're not this is going to be a disaster we're, we have so many dates scheduled with these yeah. guys like you know but then we met them and they were like the most laid back if there's ever a band like, i think we can say we got along with most on tours probably either earth crisis or candy or yeah they were like, it was like the same type of situation like we were just the same dudes and uh we were just really hit it it was just surprising how much we hit it off with them even though we're different like our personalities were just gelled so well with them so they were just it was just so much fun like we yes. heard we're playing with earth crisis like, we'll yeah. play any show with earth crisis like they, they were just it was just always so much fun and it was such a good bill for the for the uh for the crowd too we think us and earth crisis is, is a sick uh bill you know and also it's like uh because igor was really heavily into that whole uh strange thing also it was kind of like this he had this hardcore you know affection for stuff and derek obviously came from the early days of the hardcore scene that was it wasn't like we didn't feel like the left out metal uh you know hardcore band it was like it all felt normal there was nothing weird about that yeah yeah now we all everyone everyone got everyone yeah. got, everyone got along it was a good um great tour yeah it was it was it was some you know it was so much fun it was so much fun and so the first show we pull up to um sacramento special so we we had toured with will haven who they're from sacto um on you know the, the summer before right. we pull up they bring special guest chino moreno from uh the deftones who had just put out not uh, just put out but around the front we were big fans of but uh so he came and hung out um with us with will haven on, on our but it felt like a big it was like oh this tour is gonna be great like you know celebrity guests every night big big crowds from there all right so then we played uh san francisco <clears throat> Matt got a visit from uh, Father John. <laughs> but uh, so San Francisco, like um, Mike Cotton's there to do a song with them, you know, from uh, Roots. He sings on a song. He showed up to do a song with them. It, uh, oh, uh, freaking uh, Newstead was there. I don't know if he came out and played, but I remember think, thinking he was a lot smaller than I thought he was going to be. And um, 
so anyway, we hadn't seen Rob Flynn since the Ozfest. He shows up to the Sepultura uh, show and he comes on our uh, on our bus. And um, <laughs> we had already. So. So, you know, by the time we're a year past uh, Ozfest and we're we're in imprint mode. So, you know, we're going to uh, we're shopping at, uh, you know, at uh, thrift stores. You know, we're uh, <laughs> we had evolved past the whole uh, the Jenko, yeah, or... the Jenko Adidas, uh, you know, look. <laughs> And so Rob Flynn, he comes on the bus, and one of the things he says to Kennedy is, "You gotta get yourself a pair of these." And he grabs his pants and goes, "Jinko!" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is we just found out that uh, Logan had left. He's like, "We got our room." <laughs> no, no, but you don't realize that at that time also Rob called my house and tried getting Kennedy. Yeah, he tried to get. Yeah, he did yeah. want Kennedy. He did want Kennedy. So anyway. Talking about Machine Head, there is one man who tuned down lower than the Sour Key of A. And his name is Logan, and he changed his name to Low G at one point, if you remember. And he did tune down to Low G. In medication. <laughs> yes, medication. It was uh, the, blunt. the Blunt, B. Blunt, who was in Day in the Life with my brother. He grew up across the street from me, one of my old uh, best buds. Crazy, but yeah, yeah. That was just to play Roseland. I know for me because I had seen you know growing up, that was the place to go see bands for me in uh, yeah. the early to mid nineties. The Roseland party was like, I'm happy to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> so this go, so the, the tour after that we did was with Anthrax, and talk about an exhausting tour. So we did this that in a Winnebago, driving ourselves. The first we went from so in the first six days. I don't even know how we did it. We went from New York to Ohio to L.A. to Boston. Like, I don't even know how that's possible, but, we, but I, I think it was six to eight days. Yeah. So, and we were driving. We were, on, we were I don't even LA. know how we were alive. We were in but, L.A. on the Friday and we were in Boston on the Monday. So, and that was with us trading off driving. We didn't have a driver. Anymore. We didn't have anything. And, um, you know, that, and that tour was was totally totally exhausting you know the, the and, routing on that tour was made for a bus we were driving ourselves from the anthrax we did a long tour with anthrax we went to we did a long tour we did japan australia new zealand australia japan and that was like 35 days that was a long a long one on the imprint tour and that was another exhausting when brendan got food poisoning in new zealand he ordered the cajun catfish at the club which wasn't a good idea <laughs> And he like he was puking so much. I thought he was. We should take him to the hospital. I don't know what the hell's wrong with us, but he was puking for like three days straight. <laughs> I thought he was gonna die. Is that the Australian tour that we stayed with people like in their houses? Yeah, no. In New Zealand, we ended up staying at people's at these kids' uh, houses. Like hardcore kids. Yeah, we split up to two uh, two crews. And they really, it was funny. I remember they really wanted us to be like hardcore purists. Yeah, well, the one, yeah, the crew you stayed went we with. So were like, they wanted to be like. You know, they thought we were going to be like, um, like, because we were from New York, they thought we were going to be like gangsters or something like that. And I remember the kids we were staying with, they were, the only American TV shows they had were like Ricky Lake and Jenny Jones and Jerry Springer and stuff. And they were like, are all Americans like this? <laughs> and like, and like, no, this is so weird. That this is what you want. So you tour extensively for Imprint. You come back. And of course, there is a third Vision of Disorder record from Bliss to Devastation, but it is not on Roadrunner. So how did that relationship end with Roadrunner? We had caught wind that there was going to be a lot of change happening. And uh, I think the guy's name was Derek Sussman. He was this big guy from uh, 
I want to say Warner or something. I thought the guy from Gentle Giant took over. Was going to Wessels was going to come in and he was going to purchase a big portion of the label and he's going to be a big part of the new uh, movement of Roadrunner, the next level of Roadrunner. And uh, just based on the experience we had had, it seemed like there was no real intent for us to be a priority at the label. And upon talking with each other, I think we all realized like we just got to get out off this thing and whatever the fuck happens happens but we got to figure out a way to get off the label we we like tricked i want to say we tricked the label into almost releasing us and i always remember to this day me and kennedy sitting in that room when it was monty and the new label guy and someone else and uh we were basically just telling them we wanted to go back to being that total pc hardcore band resurrecting reality even using it as, as, as an example you know like using it almost as, as a weapon towards them like all right, well, we want to be just, you know, playing on the weekends, not really torn anymore. We're going to go, you know, not take it as serious. And and it works. But I do remember at the time in that meeting, Monty looking at us and being like, you fucks. Like, I know you're you're up to Look, something. They, they, one, it, it could have, you know, they did agree, surprisingly, to give us back our merchandise. From yeah. I wasn't at that meeting, but I heard that after. And I was like, oh, we still agreed to <laughs> we still agreed to the release after they changed that. <laughs> and they, right, changed right. That, they were supposed to give us like. At the time, I, I think it was like 150 grand budget for the next album recording budget, which was a lot for us at the time. So I remember thinking, like, oh, we can get like any producer we want. We should, when they give us a merchandise, because <laughs> you know you don't want to think, you know, it's a scary thing to do is yeah. to be like jump off a label, right? Without, you know, yeah. So it it worked because I think they just saw it as okay. Well, I, I don't know. I, I never really thought Case we were his favorite band anyway, to be honest. So uh, at that label at the time when we were signed. It really was if Case liked you, you got some cash. If, if Case didn't like you, it, it seemed like you didn't really get much push. So uh, we were never really a favorite. So I think that uh, it just made logical sense to the label at time because they were going through a transition. So um, they signed the papers, we signed the papers, and you know that was it. Kind of ties. And then from Blitz to Devastation, not to talk about it too, too much, uh, although I love it and could talk about it for extended periods of time, you know, is almost very much what Roadrunner is doing, like in 2000, 2001. It's very uh, commercial comparatively to the first two records. It's uh, got, you know, choruses and hooks and those sick single note riffs and everything like that. So, you know, you talked about Imprint being a direct response to Self-Titled. Was From Bliss to Devastation a direct response to how Imprint was received, where you wanted to be like, okay, we'll show you that we can make this kind of record? Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> also Definitely. and also it's kind of like finally you're in a situation of your career where you're like all right well we don't want to make another imprint we already did it and if there's one thing i can say about bliss is that that's the record we had to make there's no other option there was no thought of like yeah but what if we do something like self-titled like like mixed with imprint there was nothing of that what happened was bliss just because we wanted to do that we actually literally made that record because that's what we at the time were into that's what we like yeah, so we want to play songs that are that are more fun to play and let's see if we can do let's see if we can just do some so let's just do some songs because after you do something like imprint it's like what are we gonna write a more complicated riff or repeat ourselves again and do the same thing again it just wasn't interesting and you know there's a chunk of time that we're leaving out in between um imprint and for, from blissed devastation and that's for the bleeders which was really kind of like trying to take our songs back because you're also you got to go back to still where 
you know, through all this touring, we, we put out the, the record still and that EP, I guess it's an EP. It started as a seven inch. We started going to countries and seeing it on CD. We had got paid. The, our payment for still was 1,007 inches to sell ourselves for probably $3 a piece. And we had saw that we don't, still don't know how much that sold throughout the world, how much it spread. And those songs, we didn't, they weren't all, like we had lost our, our entire catalog wasn't ours. So we had lost two full records worth of songs and everything before it. We didn't own anything. It was all someone else's. So it was kind of like, can we just do something right now in between to kind of reset and take our like music back? from all the mistakes we've just made over the past five years. Like, you know, there was kind of like that whole, it was kind of like a reset button and it was kind of like a, uh, something to give for the, to, for people who were fans of us still to give, put the songs back out, try to record them in a way we recorded them where we recorded still with Tim Gillis. So we were like, this is a sound that people are uh, used to not whether it's you know good or bad. It's something that they're used to. It won't be foreign to their ears. We can, we can finally, uh, take control over these songs and maybe get some money from these songs that other people are collecting money from and, and try to re reset. And also I'll say it's also, I think subconsciously a reaction to, we probably should have put a bunch of those songs on our first record. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> and we didn't stupidly because, you know, young and our worldview of, of, you know, people are sick of choke. People are sick of formula. Like not realizing that, yeah, they're on like demos. Nobody knows. Like we're putting out a world right. Like, no, we got to do all new stuff. This is our first album. Not like these are good songs that people will like. Put them on your first album. Which I also attribute <laughs> to that the label should have told us at the time. Right, right. But the you know, label's advice was uh, well, it was not always good. Like, for example, the original song order of Imprint, which I still think right. should have Imprint playing. was supposed to start the album. Talk about an album. Well, listen, I'm not gonna argue with the bass kicking off the album. I mean, come on. <laughs> The whole design of the album is supposed to start with the oh, guitar yeah. plug-in, and we're kicking this and we're kicking this album off, and it's the title track, and we're, and we're kicking it off. But someone at the label um, oh, was obsessed with it not being the first track, and then um, we couldn't decide, so we just said, "Dave Sardi, choose the first track," and he just chose "What You Are," and that's what. And that's yeah, how I it remember Monty being like, "Well, there's your hook, you like the first chorus whatever that is hook schmuck i mean yeah, i know i know but it was so surprising to hear from roadrunner at that time like hook you guys I care about hooks? i remember being in his office though he's playing on his right. speakers of monte connor stereo you know and being like oh i guess that means something right. you know like, like it had merit to it it's like didn't you guys put out the origin of the feces <laughs> like you care about a hook and what you know like what is something that you would do differently with imprint is it the track listing do you feel like that's kind of a, a missed opportunity yeah the track listing. Um, I don't know if I, there's anything else that would be done differently. I feel like that was one of the, one of the albums we can look back on proudly and um, maybe not master it as, as hard as it. Oh yeah. But that was at the time that was something different. It's hard to, yeah. yeah it's, it, at that time, it wasn't something we were going to argue with, you know, making it loud and, you know, but I don't know. I think that's, I don't know. It's, it's funny. Cause like, you know, post list, which is like the most produced VOD of all time. Uh, maybe thinking of, you know Dave Sardi you hear his band even Bark Mark and everything his vocals are so cool uh, the way he's produced uh, I think that maybe he could have maybe done a little bit more cooler vocal sounds at times you know it's, yeah. it's just so raw 
raw. Everything's just everything's raw. raw, but there's not much cheese on it. Yeah. Not much cheese, which is good. It's good to have an album where there aren't too many cringe. There's always a part on every album where there's not too many cringeworthy parts. There's some songs that didn't come out quite as good, but I don't know if we could change that. Yeah. I, would, I would say the one thing we do is is try to record a couple more a couple more songs, and maybe if saved a couple and then maybe put put something out or, or saved it over time and released them now or something you know something like that I, I always get jealous when fans always have extra material we don't yeah. you know we have some but not a lot i did speak <laughs> to uh someone recently about uh possibly uh the remix possibility of something of, of that i think it would be cool to hear almost like a modern take on that analog sound to see what could happen Matt, what is your favorite moment of this whole record process, whether it's a moment on tour? I know you got to play with Sepultura. That's really cool. Making the album, a song that you wrote. What's what's something of the imprint era of VOD that stands out to you as a, a real hallmark? Um, I could say it's, it's, it's the, just the capability of being able to go do nothing but music. That's the only time in our life I think we as musicians were able to not worry about working and just go to a studio even at one o'clock in the afternoon and just play it didn't matter there was no day that mattered it would be a sunday it could be a tuesday it didn't matter we were just concentrating on trying to write a good record and uh that to me is worth something but like the the idea of having a space that was ours during the day to make this crazy noise and everything was just, it was a lot of fun. I agree with that because it was like the, my favorite, most fond memories come from that time period. And it was like, it was, it was life was get up, you go to the gym, you go to practice. And then at night we would just, we would party every single night and just hang out with our friends. And like, it was just, uh, it was exactly the way life should, should be for a, uh, for an artiste. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think the, the album reflected that because we, we, we just pounded out work in the studio and it was fast, fast, fast. And it just feels like a, a reflection of that time when I hear it. Yeah, it was a real moment in the band's time, I think, of like just what we were doing combined with what life was. There's nothing that's, uh, there's nothing I would do different at all about that, that part of it. You know? I will close it out with my favorite tour story from the Earth Crisis, Sepultura, VOD, Meep Meep, uh, United States, <laughs> 1998 extravaganza, was we were in some um, southwestern area town where the, the fans that showed up were not that familiar with Earth Crisis's way of, uh, of life, right? So they, they're, they're, they're there. They, hey, you guys, uh, tonight after the show, you guys want to party? So there's a bunch of people. It's us, and uh, we're standing in front of our bus. It's us. It's me, you. We got a couple uh, <coughs> bulldog brothers from, uh, we call them the bulldog brothers, <laughs> from Earth Crisis. And uh, we're like, hell yeah, show, we'll party <laughs> after the show. So they come <laughs> after the show's over. <laughs> we, we have a nice plan with the guys from Earth Crisis. So it's me, Matt, Brendan, and the bulldog brothers on the bus. You might not remember this. Remember we put on the song. Dance the night away by Van Halen. Dance the night. So the, the these uh, these guys and gals that want to come party with you guys after the show, knock on the How bus door. We put on we put on the lights, the mood lights. We had these like Christmas different color lights. We put on Dance the Night Away by Van Halen, and me, Matt, and the Bulldog Brothers start dancing like really sensuously with each other. <laughs> and they open, Brandon opens the door and lets them on the bus. They walk up to the platform and see us dancing with each other. <laughs> dance the night away and they all just 
look at each other, turn around, and, <laughs> and walk up to us. <laughs> That's my favorite uh, story of that, my fondest memory of that story. <laughs> Thanks so much to Mike and Matt for sharing all those stories, man. Too cool. Imprint, 1998. What other questions could you possibly have? (laughs) Well, don't ask me. I gotta get ready for the next episode. And not only do I have to get ready for the next episode for next week, which is Karma the Burns, self-titled 1997 album, but also Patreon.com slash MeetMeetPod exclusively presents... Living with a Pod Complex, the Trustkill Records spinoff because Roadrunner distributed Trustkill for a couple years, and we're going to talk about it. And we're already talking about it. You can head over there. There's already an episode about Hope's Falls 2002 album, The Satellite Years, with guitarist Josh Brigham. And coming soon is a episode about Open Hands' You and Me album from 2005, and we'll just keep on cranking them out like we've been cranking these out, and I appreciate you guys turning that crank with me with your own personal jack-in-the-box, myself, Ryan Rainbow. And because the Joker's wild, you gotta go on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You gotta follow the show on Instagram at Meet Meet Pod to keep up with all the upcoming episodes and happenings and pictures of Jimbo. And you gotta join me next week for Karma to Burn as we wrap up the year 1997, as we burn it down, as we burn one up. Until then again, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is me, Meep, and yes, that's the best that I can come up with. Bye.